The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. As I dug into how my family gained and then lost control of a plot of land in East Texas, I learned that we were part of a broader trend. For Black Americans after slavery, owning land was freedom. It was autonomy and, importantly, economic security. Because farming was big business back then. And some Black families have been farmers for generations, all the way up to the present day. Take one Black farmer in Virginia, John Boyd, who grows wheat and other crops. He also raises cows. I really was trained as a farmer by my dad and and grandfather. My mother's parents were sharecroppers, and I also worked on their farm as a a little boy. So I got to see it on both sides, you know, what it was like to, to own your farm. And I also got to see what it was like having grandparents as uh, sharecroppers. John comes from a long line of black farmers whose legacy stretches back to the end of the Civil War. His farm is located in a southern Virginia town called Baskerville. In 1868, the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to black people. And after the Civil War, despite many obstacles, black people were able to purchase some of the very land they'd been forced to farm under slavery. By 1920, black men operated around 14% of all the farms in the U.S. But over the years, that share of black farms declined, and in a big way. Today, black people operate less than 2% of farms in America. White people basically run the rest. So what happened to the black farming industry over the last century? Of course, I knew we had racial tensions in the country at that time, but... I didn't see it as what I was about to run into, this major brick wall and I awakening a reality check with the government. It was a real wake-up call for me. They really let me know that there was a difference in the way uh, many in this country view black and white and, and race relations. In the late 1980s, John Boyd had only owned his land for a few years, but he found himself on the verge of losing all of it and jeopardizing his family's legacy of ownership. There was a nine-year period in which I was trying to get farm operating loans. So I was applying every year. I think I may have received uh, one one loan, and the rest were, were denials. So towards the uh, last bit of the 80s and early 90s, uh, every, every, everything just blew up. The thing is... What happened to John Boyd was also happening to tens of thousands of other black farmers. And it was happening because they were black. 
But those thousands of farmers were about to take on the government. And their fight represents a long overlooked chapter in the push for black equality. The data shows that the median white family has 10 times more wealth than the average black family. One of the drivers of that wealth gap is redlining. Economists often point to the absence of African-American generational wealth. We are here to let our voices be heard, and we're going to let the United States Department of Agriculture know that we're not leaving until we receive some justice. Y'all, come on in. It's a trend propelled not just by economic forces, but by white racism and local white political and economic power. It's much easier to integrate a lunch counter than it is to guarantee an annual income, for instance, to get rid of poverty. Welcome back to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And I'm Jackie Simmons. This week, we're talking about land, specifically farmland. Today, when we think about wealthy dynasties, we don't usually think about generations of farmers. But for most of the 20th century, Farming was a huge part of life in America. It was a huge part of black life. Running a farm was a good way to make a living, and owning the land meant farmers could pass wealth to their children. But over the last century, black people lost nearly all their farmland. We're talking about a huge amount of black wealth that has simply vanished. By one estimate, the land alone was worth $350 billion. So what made that wealth disappear? A lot of it goes back to farming loans. And it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's responsible for dispensing those loans. That's where John Boyd comes in. Elizabeth Rembert has a story. John Boyd bought his first piece of farmland when he was 18. He wanted to follow in his parents' and his grandparents' footsteps. And as soon as he was old enough, he set out to carve out his own piece of property. I bought my first farm in 1984 from another black farmer uh, by the name of Russell Sally. Uh, He was having difficulties with then it was called the Farmer's Home Administration. And uh, so he agreed to sell me his farm. But what John didn't know was that the difficulties that Russell was having with the Farmer's Home Administration those would foreshadow problems John himself was going to have down the line. The Farmer's Home Administration was a unit within the USDA. The USDA is the biggest provider of money to farmers in the U.S. It has a $151 billion federal budget, and part of its mission is to operate like a big bank for farmers. It lends money to pay for seeds, equipment, and labor. The USDA's roots date all the way back to Abraham Lincoln, who formally established the agency in 1862. He called it the People's Department, because back then, half of all Americans lived on a farm. But for a long time, there was a problem at the USDA. The agency, the so-called People's Department, wasn't lending money equally to Black and white farmers. In the 1990s, the agency took an average of 220 days to process a loan application for a black farmer versus the 60 days it took for a white farmer's application. And between 2006 and 2016, 
black farmers represented less than 3% of the recipients of the USDA's direct loans. But they made up more than 13% of the farmers who lost their land to foreclosure. Those discrepancies had major consequences. And John was about to find out that, as with many things in the U.S., land ownership was completely skewed to white people. Skewed as in black people own less than 1% of American farmland. White people basically own the rest. Economists call this the land gap. A better name for it might be the land chasm, the Grand Canyon of inequity. Black land ownership began to fall off after its peak in 1910. Many black farmers didn't have wills or estate plans. So banks, real estate companies, and other predatory actors were able to force property sales when black landowners died. Some stopped farming due to intimidation and violent race riots. One farmer told me she remembers racist neighbors burning crosses on the land her family owned. And then there was the USDA, which was locking black farmers out and causing them to lose their land. The impact of losing that land lasted generations. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. I talked to Thomas Mitchell, a law professor at Texas A&M, about the cost of what black farmers were shut out of. Not just the land itself, but the economic power it could have had to secure college educations and build wealth over generations. He added all of that potential value that would have been built on the land to the $350 billion he estimates the farmland itself is worth. And he came up with a dollar figure that represents everything black farmers have lost over the years. We're thinking that that additional impact could be, you know, somewhere between 400 and 550 billion dollars. So that the overall negative net impact of this loss of land could be on the order of a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. That's a really huge number to wrap your head around. But what Thomas is saying is that the gulf between black and white land ownership is a root cause of the gap between black and white wealth. Now, John Boyd, the farmer that we heard from earlier, he wasn't thinking about the wealth gap or the land gap or structural inequality back in the 1980s. He just wanted to farm. And usually, when a person wants to farm, 
the USDA can be a partner in that. Its purpose is to help farmers with the resources they need. One of those resources, credit. Access to credit is a make-or-break issue for most farmers, especially for young farmers. Farmers often need loans to get the seed in the ground and the equipment running. After they harvest and sell their crops, they can use that money to pay back the loan, and it's a cycle for every season. But if they never get that loan, or if they don't get it on time or get enough money, it sets their harvest back and then their ability to pay loans back. To start the process of getting credit and resources, farmers head into their local USDA office and sit down with the loan officer. But in John's first meeting with his county's USDA loan officer, back in the mid-1980s, he could tell that borrowing wouldn't be easy. For one, the USDA officer would only see Black farmers once a week. So we all had the same letters. Your appointment is at 9 o'clock, 9 a.m. Wednesday morning. And we would all come to the office with the, with the same letter. And what he experienced next was disturbing. It was, uh, you know, a time period where he tore my application up and tossed it in the trash can. This man spat on me. He left the door open. He talked boastfully, loudly uh, about what he wasn't going to do. And, uh, you know, if he was going to do something, this is all he was going to do. And it was a real quick eye-opening experience uh, for the way Blacks were treated versus uh, whites, uh, especially in the South. John says that white farmers were treated very differently. He says that once, he was meeting with a loan officer when a white farmer walked in. John says the loan officer handed over a government check for $157,000. According to John, after exchanging pleasantries with the white farmer and making plans for dinner, the loan officer casually reminded him to come back and fill out the paperwork for the loan because he'd estimated based on the previous year's numbers. John had been practically begging for a loan for a tiny fraction of that amount. So here this farmer had received a farm operating loan for $157,000. He hadn't even done the paperwork, uh, the correct paperwork on the loan. And I was pretty much begging and pleading for a $5,000 operating loan. And he had this conversation as though I was invisible. John says the USDA operated like a whites-only country club, where you had to be a part of the club to get the money that you need for your farm. And this discrimination against Black farmers was so widespread that people called the USDA the last plantation in news articles, studies, and even in court documents. The USDA is a federal agency, but many loan decisions are made locally by committee members. They're elected by their local communities, and the overwhelming majority of these committee members were white. So they were just your local guys, but they had a huge amount of influence and power. On a whim, they could reject, delay, or reduce loans to farmers. Here's John talking about the loan officer. He told me one time uh, he was the next thing to God in this county. He controlled all the bank boards, and he said, nobody lends more money in this county than I do. And if you don't learn how to speak to me, you're not going to get any any money and, and you won't be 
and you won't be farming very long. That's what he said. And we got into it and I told him I didn't, I didn't know what Jesus Christ nor God looked like. I said, but he can't look like you. He can't act like you. John applied every year for an operating loan, which was essential in getting seeds in the ground to be able to make money in the harvest. But nearly every single application was denied. And without those loans, John couldn't get the profit from his farm that he needed to pay down the debt he'd inherited from the previous owner. One day, John says the USDA tried to take some of the land away from him. John says his loan officer wanted him to sign over his land to a white landowner in the area. And then John could rent land from the white farmer. So basically he wanted me to be a sharecropper. John says he refused to sign the paperwork because he refused to give up on his land. He was determined to fight to keep it. He borrowed money from his family and friends, and that helped him scrape together enough to make the minimum payment each month for a while. Until one day, he couldn't. And then one night, at midnight, federal agents sent by the USDA showed up banging on his front door. They woke up his five-year-old son, who looked on as strangers loaded his father's belongings into trucks. You know, they kept choosing to sell me out rather than to work with me uh, to see what they could do to help me stay on the farm. John knew this wasn't just happening to him. He started calling up other black farmers in the area to talk about their experiences dealing with the USDA. And he found that discrimination by local loan officers was sort of an open secret. We would shake our heads, but we didn't have a real conversation. Uh, must, old black pride is the definition of that. Black farmers like John were losing their land, their operations, and their ability to improve their lives and their children's lives. Because they couldn't get loans. So John decided to fight back. He started a group called the National Black Farmers Association to represent black farmers' interests and to get people to take him seriously. And he started suing the government. First, John tried to contest his own loan rejection with the USDA. Then he started filing lawsuits on behalf of other farmers for their discrimination at the hands of the USDA. And then, in 1996, he led a group of 60 farmers to Washington, D.C., I was campaigning and, and, and protesting in uh, cities around the country, and I took my mule there, took my tractor there. John's message, as he and a crowd of protesters led literal mules around the seat of government, we have our mule, now we're looking for our 40 acres. I went over to the department for the first day, and there were a group of black farmers picketing the Department of Agriculture. That's Dan Glickman. Today, he's a senior policy fellow at a think tank. But back in 1996, he had recently been appointed to be Secretary of Agriculture by President Bill Clinton. He had served nine terms in Congress as a representative from Kansas, and he thought he was pretty well steeped on the issues farmers face. Until he got to the USDA. 
Well, I was a congressman for 18 years from Kansas, had served on the Agriculture Committee that entire time, and do not recall ever one hearing on this subject of discrimination against minority or black farmers. He says his first impulse was to figure out what was going on. So I talked to my staff and I said, let's get into this thing. Let's figure out what's happening. I talked to the farmers who were picketing uh, for a short time and I said, well, I'll get to work on it. I don't know anything about it. Then he went to the White House and talked to Bill Clinton personally. Essentially, he says the president told him, make this right. And it was complicated because uh, the picketing didn't stop. And we had uh, open sessions that were pretty emotional, not only in Washington and around the country. I took a team and we listened to farmers in various states, particularly in the South. We did open town meetings and you, you could sense the high level of emotion and the belief that this system wasn't working for a large number of people. When Dan listened to the farmers' stories, he said he knew these experiences weren't isolated loan denials or just random offenses. The stories trace back to a much bigger history of racism and its hold on agriculture, property, and opportunity. One farmer that Dan heard a lot from was John Boyd. By this time, John had filed a lot of lawsuits against the USDA's Civil Rights Office, alleging that the USDA was discriminating against him and other black farmers. And Dan, as Agriculture Secretary, was the defendant in many of those lawsuits. The movement was growing. The protests John led and the lawsuits he filed were getting national media attention. And that media attention led more and more Black farmers to go public with their own experiences of discrimination at the hands of the USDA. In 1997, John got an update from Washington. The USDA's Civil Rights Office was going to settle the complaint that he had filed against the agency over discrimination. John saw it as a victory after so many years of fighting. For him, it confirmed what he had always known. He had been treated unfairly. It included a 12-page document that stated outright that the USDA had discriminated against John. He wouldn't tell me exactly how much he got, but it was enough to buy some land back. But the loan officer in Virginia who John says spat on him and tore up his loan application? John says he retired. So there, there was no, no act of penalty for anyone uh, who discriminated against any of us. John's case turned out to be bigger than him. His settlement and all of his activism set the stage for something that would go way beyond him and put more than $2 billion in the hands of thousands of black farmers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Soon after John's own case was settled with the USDA, he worked with a farmer from North Carolina named Timothy Pigford to file what would become the largest class action lawsuit in U.S. history. The lawsuit became known as Pigford versus Glickman. Timothy Pigford's lawyers claimed the USDA had discriminated against black farmers when doling out loans and assistance. It was a familiar complaint by now. But the Pigford case took things further. It also said the USDA had not properly handled complaints of prejudice. In fact, the agency wasn't handling the complaints at all. The USDA's Civil Rights Office, which was supposed to investigate reports from farmers, hadn't functioned properly for more than a decade. That meant submissions were ignored. And complaints of racism were just collecting dust for years while farmers lost their livelihoods. Pigford recruited more than 400 other black farmers to join the class action lawsuit. And the case landed in the hands of a federal judge named Paul Friedman, who approved the landmark settlement. And in the order he released in court, he traced the legacy of racism in agriculture all the way back to the U.S. government's original reparations promise, when Union generals pledged those 40 acres and a mule to freed slaves at the end of the Civil War. He called the dysfunction of the agency's civil rights office the, quote, culmination of a string of broken promises that had been made to African-American farmers for well over a century. Paul Friedman's 1999 decision provided a starting point for any black farmer who felt they'd experienced discrimination between 1981 and 1996. They could now come forward to try and prove their case for damages. Well, so, some people wanted the money because of just compensation for past wrongs. Some of the people wanted money to use for operating their existing farms, operating loans. And some of the people wanted it to buy additional farm land. Black farmers were struggling with economic problems in agriculture that, it was, that were affecting almost all farmers. That's Dan Glickman again. He says, the way the settlement was structured was probably the closest thing the U.S. has come to issuing real reparations to Black Americans. When Black farmers around the country heard about the lawsuit, they started coming out in droves, each with their own personal story of racism at the hands of the USDA. Now came the question of who was entitled to payments, and how much. How do you prove that as a Black farmer, you lost your land because of systemic discrimination. And how much money can really make that right? The court appointed a monitor named Randy Roth to review every claim of discrimination and determine who was eligible for compensation. Randy and her team traveled the country and processed tens of thousands of those farmers' claims 
to determine if the USDA had discriminated against them. So for a farmer to win in the case, the farmer had to specifically identify a similarly situated white farmer who was treated more favorably. The way they did that was by digging through old public documents. One of the ways that they found the information was to go to their county courthouse and see what loans white farmers had recorded. You record a security interest in a loan. And that was, for many people, a very fruitful way to get information about white farmers' loans. By the end of the settlement, and a subsequent class action suit known as Pigford II, over $2 billion was paid out by the U.S. government to black farmers across the country. The thing about Pigford was, by the time of the settlement, a lot of the damage had already been done. From 1910, which is largely considered the peak of Black land ownership, Black people had lost 90% of their land. And even the $2 billion that the Pigford suits doled out, mostly in $50,000 increments to individual farmers, didn't come close to the amount of money that Black farmers really lost at the hands of the USDA's discriminatory practices. But John Boyd says that the money did help a lot of people. $50,000 to a struggling farmer who has no money is a real shot in the arm up. So it did help. Did it give the land back? No. Was it enough settlement to, to make all of the discrimination go away from USDA? The answer is no. But did it help the people who got the money? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, here again, I see it. I see it uh, on both sides of the coin. Uh, for farmers who were treated brutally and, and awful by the government, no, it was not enough money for the settlement. But it, it was a building block. And, you know, if you're building a building, you build it in blocks. John sees the Pigford settlements and all of the organizing it took to get there as a crucial chapter in the long fight for equality for Black Americans. There's a huge uh, gap in the history when people... When these experts talk, they go from the 60s to the Black Lives Matter and, and uh, the Black Farmer movement, like I said, was, is absent from that conversation. John's payout came after decades of fighting, decades of hard times. And the money came at a personal cost. He'd been traveling around the country talking to farmers and lobbying politicians. He'd gotten divorced. He'd spent time away from his son. And then he got a victory that he knows wasn't enough. But it still got him land. These days, John spends most of his time on the 300-acre Virginia farm that he was able to hold on to, in part, with the settlement money. He spends his days like any farmer. He wakes up early in the morning to feed the cows, plant seed or plow fields, fix equipment, and check on his crops and livestock. He's trying to impart his love of the land on the young farmers he works with as the president of the National Black Farmers Association. In all my interviews, the Pigford case has come across as something that set a huge precedent while failing to make black farmers whole. It's a big deal that a federal agency literally paid retribution for its discrimination 
and that the nation's largest class action lawsuit attempts to atone for racism. But is that really enough? $2 billion is a lot of money. But compared to the hundreds of billions black landowners lost or were denied over a century, well, as John says, it's a drop in the bucket. And it didn't bring about the systemic changes to bridge the land gap. So John is still fighting. Because he says that land in America tells a bigger story about race and power. And that as long as there's an unequal land ownership, wealth and power will be out of balance as well. I hate to keep going back to my dad and grandfather, but no, uh, they taught me the land is the most powerful tool that you can possess. Uh, landless culture is a powerless culture. If you don't own any land as a group of people, you don't have any bargaining power. You don't have any uh, power at, um, as, a, as a group of people. My grandfather said, uh, you can't leave your PhD to your children, but I can leave my poor old raggedy farm, you know, to give them some financial stability. Land is it. Listening to John Boyd got me thinking about the obstacles Black people faced back when my family farmed their land in East Texas in the early 20th century. But his story also jolted me into realizing that Black people, even today, struggle to hold on to their farms. The upshot is Black involvement in what used to be a cornerstone of the U.S. economy has been stripped to almost nothing. Owning a farm is only one way to make money from land. Today, there's a far more common wealth-building tool that, at least in theory, is accessible to far more Americans. Homes. Next week on The Paycheck, we dig into the ways Black people are still being left out of the housing market. It's embarrassing, right? I feel like there is no safe place for me to have this conversation because I'm going to get judged one way or another. Um, You know, it's, it's a lot. I feel betrayed, too. Yeah, I feel left behind. I, I, I feel left behind. Before we go, we have a request for you. Experts estimate that closing the racial wealth gap would take around $13 trillion, give or take a trillion or two. That works out to about $300,000 for every Black American. We'd like to know. What would you do with that $300,000? How might it change your life? How might your life stay the same? Record a voice memo with your answers to these questions and email it to me at rgreenfield at bloomberg.net or leave a voicemail for us at 646-324-3490. We may use your voice on the show. Thanks for listening to The Paycheck. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Rebecca Greenfield. And me, Jackie Simmons. Today's episode was edited by Francesca Levy and reported by Elizabeth Rimbert and Shelley Banjo. This episode was produced by Lindsay Cradowell. We also had production help from Magnus Henriksen and Ethan Brooks. And editing help from Janet Paskin, Rakshida Saluja, Jackie Simmons, and me. Our original music is by Leo Citrin. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. We'll see you next time.
The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.